Yes, hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. So, Flynn, we start the show tonight. We got a little surprise on YouTube this week, uh, courtesy of a lecture that Toby Scott did down in Mexico. Yeah, he was talking about mixing or recording multi-track, and uh, to to illustrate some of his examples, he used Born in the USA and not the official track, some of the some of the takes that that went on between the acoustic demo that was released on tracks that was recorded as part of the of the Nebraska sessions and uh, and between and before the USA official official release so we got some basically it sounded like electric Nebraska and that was and it showed some of the intermediate steps between the acoustic demo and what we eventually heard yeah let's not underplay this because this is very big Basically, he took us inside the process, as you just noted, from Bruce's acoustic demo, which we know was recorded January 3rd, 1982. And we heard takes, I have my notes here, three takes that we've never heard before that are much closer in terms of the riff to the acoustic demo than it is to the final version that's on Born in the USA. And this is a major find. So let's talk about what we heard and also what may be the ramifications of this. All right. Well, what we heard was the, the process that Bruce went through in the studio in terms of taking that acoustic demo and coming up with an arrangement to record with the E street band. And he came up with, as you said, a a melody more close or closer to, to what, uh, to the acoustic demo. And he, he even included Toby Scott. Even included some instructions that that Bruce gave to the band. Like I'll do the, let me do the first verse solo, and then you guys come in on on the second verse. So it, it's it was just a little glimpse uh, into Bruce's artistic process. That uh, for that song, and that's very close to what we consider the uh, Lecture of Nebraska sessions. Definitely, this lets us in on something we have not heard before, and. We certainly hope to hear more of in the future. I think there's a expectation pretty much by everyone that at some point they're going to release a Born in the USA box. As we've discussed on this show, he doesn't like to do a lot of alternates, but I think that when the box comes out, this stuff is going to be really integral to telling the complete story. And and the other interesting thing about it was that Toby, uh, and who knows, there's been a lot of debate over his calling. He played what he said was take two take three, take four, and then he played the official release version, which he said was take nine. Now, that sort of punctures the story as we've known it over the years, if he's accurate. I would even call it a story. I would call it the legend. <laughs> the legend that uh, that we've always heard, I think, I forget who said it. Was it Max or maybe even Bruce himself, that they, they did Born in the USA in the studio in two takes, and it's the second take that, that was released. And this just shows that was not the uh, that was not what actually happened and it would be it would be logical to assume that there were some like as i called them intermediate takes between the acoustic demo and and take 9 but uh they they seem to have whenever they talked about the recording of the song they those intermediary takes were always left out of the discussion now, one other thing we don't know is how long of a process this was. He he spoke about the takes, but he didn't say take two was done 
this day and take three was done this day and we got the take nine two months later. So we don't know how long this took to unfold. But what I will say is, and listening to it now, the album track of Born in the USA, in my opinion, is one of the best tracks he's ever released. It's one of the best songs he's ever written. I wouldn't replace it no matter what we heard. We know the success that resulted from that song and that record. But I, I do have to say there's some really interesting alternate takes in here. The, the What he called take four, which started off in the instructions, Bruce said to the band, I'm going to do it this way, which he meant a cappella. And then you guys come in on the second verse. Bruce sings the first verse totally without instrumentation, just his voice. And it's very powerful. And then the band kicks in with Max. That That's a very interesting version. I hope... Well, I hope we're going to hear all of these versions at some point, but but that one in particular really caught my attention. Absolutely. I don't think any of these takes would be considered better than what was eventually released in, in June of 1984. I, I agree with you. It is one of his most powerful songs. It's one of his best songs. But what we're hearing is the artistic process of how he goes from point A to point B and what kind of arrangements he, he uses in there and, and to get to the final spot. And I also think that what makes it so fascinating is just the question, other questions that it raises in terms of are other songs like this? Are there, is there versions of say reason to believe that sound kind of like this um, in terms of in the band with the, in the studio with the band. So it obviously it raises a lot more questions than it answers. That is for sure. And <laughs> is there any indication? I yeah. I mean, is there any indication that we're getting any closer to the Born in the USA box? From my perspective, it seems just as a sensible position, it's not going to come now until 2024. It's the perfect opportunity for the 40th anniversary. It also could tie into the touring that's going to hopefully happen. What are you hearing about this? I haven't heard anything. Okay. Um, I am not holding my breath for a USA box this year. It seems it's obvious that they worked on it, that they've, or I mean, I shouldn't even say that they've worked on the box. I will just say that they've obviously worked on some of these tracks over the years. And, and obviously if Toby Scott is going around the country or world, since this was in Mexico with a laptop full of these, of these alternate and, or shall we say other takes of the songs that, Something, some work has has been done on what could be included, but I haven't heard anything about anything being imminent. Boy, I wonder what kind of security he's traveling with. <laughs> that is a hard drive that they would not want to get lost. Yeah, I agree with you. I was thinking about that myself. What kind of password protected he must have on every uh, everything? <laughs> not that's just getting be into the laptop. Layers, yeah. Not that not just getting into the laptop, but opening up the audio program, opening up those. Uh, those files so it's it's just fun adds a little uh adds a piece that we didn't have before something we haven't heard before and of course it just makes us want want more in the future the word i would use is tantalizing that's the perfect <laughs> word perfect word it, perfect word it, it set us up it's not a huge amount of material that we heard but we heard enough to know that we <laughs> need to hear more yes Yes, we did. And uh, eh, one day, but I'm not holding my breath for any time soon. All right. Well, with that surprise, let's move on to our main topic tonight. We're picking back up on the 1992-93 tour when Bruce did his first ever tour without the E Street Band. 
and we're going to start in March. The band had finished in December. They took January and February off. They reconvened for rehearsals at the Count Basie Theater, and then on March 23rd of that year, 1993, there was a rehearsal show that fortunately I attended with your lovely wife, and that was a day that we will remember for a long time. Well, I wasn't there, but uh, I remember reading about it the next day, and or not not reading about it, calling into the Backstreet's boss hotline uh, the next day, and holy, holy crap. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would have liked to have been in that building, but uh, if it was just, I mean, I probably had a small fraction of what you guys were feeling, and you guys must have been on, on top of the world. It was insane. It was totally insane. I'd gotten a call that morning. I was asleep in bed. It was early in the morning and someone left a message on my answering machine and I heard it because that was the way answering machines worked, of course, back then. And I heard something about a Bruce show tonight. And I was like, what? I got up and I listened to it and I called Claudine. I was like, there's a show tonight. We got to find out what's going on here and get into it. And we did. And, and we went down there and it was a, a stormy night. It, we drove down in a torrential rain and he came out on stage and he said the magic words, we're going to do some stuff tonight we don't normally do. <laughs> and and just to put this show in context before we talk about what happened, what people need to understand is in 1993, the idea that he was going to pull out long lost outtakes, songs that hadn't been played in 15 years. Or ever. Or ever. That kind of thing was completely just not in anyone's minds. It w wasn't happening. It's not like the reunion era where suddenly you'll get a song that hasn't been played in 20 years. This was just completely out of nowhere. That's the context you have to think about now when we when we talk about this show. At that point, we still expected him to kind of continue with what he had been doing. And anything else was just un inconceivable, to use one of our favorite words from Princess Bride. Is just, I can't imagine being there. But let's go ahead and, and, and talk about the set list. Yeah, he came out. He opened with Does This Bus Stop, which hadn't been played since December 31st, 1975. <laughs> you, the Right there, it was just, it was hard to conceive. Again, it, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but this was a time, this did not happen. You know, he had played the same batch of older songs, even with the E Street Band, he wasn't going back and playing a lot of stuff off Greetings. As we know, basically the only song played off Greetings for a, a large part of that time was Spirit. And j just with, with that, up. it just set, and Grown Up, yes, I'm sorry, and Grown Up. It, but it set the tone, a song that hadn't been played in 18 years. The song that followed was I Ain't Got No Home, which well, I, I don't well, think that that was the first time also for that one. Oh, it no, it had been played once before. Yeah. Right. But I want to go back. I want to go back a little bit. At that point in the previous previous year, especially in the summer, he had done a couple of uh, acoustic opening songs. Yeah. So when he came out and he was just him and the guitar, it must not have. You just thought, OK, well, he's going to give us an acoustic opener, right? Until he said, we're going to do some stuff tonight that we don't normally do. Now, but but, now at the same, was, but he said that before the opening song. So you you were, it was not unheard of, as I said, for him to open with an acoustic song. Right. Right. So it wasn't until he got to the second song, which you were like, whoa, something special is going on here, right? Well, that, the second song, certainly we were like, okay, this is unusual. The third <laughs> song, 
the third song was one of the most remarkable moments I've ever witnessed in terms of a, a song coming out of nowhere because he didn't play outtakes. Uh, the idea that he was going to play any outtake at that point was just completely foreign. You know, of course, he'd played roulette, but roulette had been released first. Suddenly, right. out of I, nowhere, I, he... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think you, you have to kind of acknowledge that it was completely unreleased at this point. Completely. The idea that it was being played, and we're talking about This Heartland, which was premiered live as the third song of the night. And this was a knowledgeable crowd. It just took people's breaths away. It was hard to fathom what was going on. And especially now with this trifecta, because the whole start of the show was truly stuff completely out of left field. And, and of course it was a full acoustic set. It wasn't just one song. It was, you got three in a row and three, not just three songs, but three jaw droppers in a row. And, the performance he was he was on that night this was this was a very special night and even once the acoustic performance ended i mean when this hard land ended i remember and and i remember claudine was right next to me the nobody knew what was going to happen after that it it was like we'd stepped into some kind of alternate reality <laughs> and really that's how the night continued and this as wild as we've seen set lists over the years in the reunion era, nothing has ever come close to this. It, it just completely bonkers. <laughs> I agree with you hundred percent. So, so then he goes into, into better days. So you're kind of thinking, all right, so we're, we're back into the, back into the groove that he was, that he had going in 92 and, and then local hero. It's, so, you local know, back hero was absolutely off the charts. Great. Of, of course, He's playing in Red Bank. <laughs> the song it, it hits home the, there. It was the, it was the, tremendous. Yeah, the city where he he saw the 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 black velvet painting in the yeah. window of the five in time, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a performance. This was certainly a, a, along with the benefits that we'll discuss later that ended the tour. This was unlike any performance I had seen in 1992. The the, the band was was very, very good in 1992, and the shows were very, very good, but they were locked in here on this night in a way that was very special. And and the Viva Las Vegas, which followed Local Hero, was that was also a world premiere, a live performance, right? Yeah, yes, it, it is the first live performance of... That was great. Then he did All the Way Home, which, of course, had been played in 92, but wasn't a regular. Tough he did the it rest. solo, right? Yeah. No, I, he did all the way home with the band. The the okay. song that he did solo coming up after Tougher, he did Point Blank solo, which was also really, really good. And I, I think Point Blank, it kind of, it's one of the songs, it's an Eastery classic song. And he, but he did it totally different than he did, than he'd ever done it before. So yes. he was bringing something old, but bringing, but doing it in, in a new way. He was starting to explore here, in a way that sets up what, of course, follows with the Joe tour. You could see it in some of the arrangements and the opening sequence of this show and the shows that would follow in Europe, certainly the same thing. When we ended the last episode, we talked about was he successful in 1992 and was he happy with what had occurred? And I think we decided th these shows basically indicate that he wasn't fully 
satisfied with the success of the 92 tour because he really altered the set here. And, and what I do think is this is a standalone show. But when we talk about Europe, I do think that he morphed the tour into a much more effective arena where he used the band's talents, I think, more effectively and especially the background vocalists. Oh, I totally agree. I don't, but there's not a lot of, there's no Satan's dual crown here. There's no uh, many rivers well, across that really highlighted the gospel uh, singing uh, I, of his backup singers, though. Well, there was one song and it followed Point Blank. Now, after Point Blank, as crazy as the opening sequence was, we went through about a half hour. It, it started with the live premiere of When You're Alone, and that one was mainly Bruce and Roy. He actually called Roy his security blanket right before the song started. And, and then the singers came in there at the end, and, and I thought it was gorgeous. Right, okay. I haven't listened to, actually, I have not listened to that one in a while. I thought that was solo acoustic, but it's great to to be reminded that they uh, that they were there on that one. It sounds like it should have been played more often. It should have been included in their rotation in, in Europe. The interesting thing about all this is what sets this off? Now, some of these songs, as you know, don't get played in Europe. Was he trying them out for Europe? When You're Alone, I thought worked beautifully well. It never appeared again. It's hard to say what went on here. Did he just wake up? There's been some speculation, I think, over the years. Was he already working through the catalog? As we know, he was going to eventually arrive at tracks. They did Greatest Hits where they where they re-recorded This Hard Land. He brought Murder, Inc. out of the vaults. What's your take? Do you think he was going through this back material already at this point? He must have. I remember Backstreet's Magazine had a great line about how Bruce was listening to better tapes than we were that winter. And I think that kind of that kind of sums it up. I don't know exactly what he could have been doing, but if it resulted in this our land getting played every night and two years later you get Murder Incorporated officially released, uh, works for me. After When You're Alone, they did Human Touch Because of Night, they were great. And then <laughs> the moment that defines this show, you would think this hard land would be the moment. Really, this is the moment. I remember it so vividly because he was doing such crazy shit. <laughs> There, he was bantering with the audience and someone in the audience brought up achy, breaky heart. And which, which was a, which was a time. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge hit in 92 by Billy Ray Cyrus. Right. And but wasn't taken all that seriously. And when the, the person I think the person was sitting in the front row said that to Bruce, Bruce said, that's telepathic because I was just thinking about that song. And he started playing it. And the crowd went bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And here's Bruce <laughs> playing Achy Breaky Heart. He's doing it solo, but as he's playing, Roy comes out and a couple of the other band members play out. And it, it turns into this full band version of Achy Breaky Heart. And it was, I mean, <laughs> I know we've seen some crazy covers in the reunion era, but this really is the craziest of them all. And, and I don't know if they have the show. I, I guess they probably don't. Well, At least a multi-track. Don't, don't have it in multi. That's that's almost a guarantee. But if they have it in any form, this show should be released. And then for people who were actually online at the time, I think the Lucky Town Digest was already already a thing. People actually wrote "Achy Breaky Heart." No fucking kidding. And then they they abbreviated it so it was A B H N F K, and that's how it's it's been known ever since in in, in some circles and. 
Yeah, it it blew people's minds, and they had to somebody had to kind of indicate that no, this 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 really happened. This this was real. This was an actual performance. I remember Chris I, Chris Phillips, I think, said to me once that when he got the set list for this show, he had to make sure and confirm it because he really thought he was being punked. <laughs> well, that yeah, I can see where he would want to do that. Definitely so, see where he would want to do that. Oh, wait, what's that? Definitely see where he would want to make sure this was totally legitimate and not somebody just having a ha- having a goof. Yeah, and after Aiky Breaky Heart, Bruce made some kind of comment like, it really is a good tune or something like that. And he was giddy. He was giddy with excitement. And he started laughing and he's like, I've got one now to do. Uh, oh, it's a good one. And he called for a music stand and he opened the big book of lyrics, <laughs> which I guess they didn't have the prompter set up there. And suddenly, and again, Blinded, I think had last been played in April of 1976. He's he's giddy with excitement. He's laughing and he's like, okay. and suddenly launches into blinded. And it was just the glee of the audience and the release and just the level of excitement. It it was really something. (laughs) It just sounds like just a show full of, of, of moments. Every every song was was holy crap moment. Like we said, it's it's unlike anything I've ever seen, even with some of the great set lists in the reunion era. Uh, of course, the St. Louis 2008, which had a, a tremendous amount of shockers, but different because, again, and a much better show because the E Street Band was at its greatest for the era that night. But the difference is St. Louis 2008 took place in an environment where that was happening regularly pulling out weird stuff and and bringing back lost classics and so forth. This takes place in an environment, as we said, that where nothing of the sort is happening. <laughs> and then he, he settles back in, though, with uh, with my hometown, which which, again, makes sense, considering it's in Red Bank, just yeah. a couple, couple miles from Colts now. And, and that followed with appropriately Promised Land Acoustic. And, and that was also a very, very nice version. He seemed... I think he wanted to get some rehearsal in of the of the regular material they play on the tour because then he switched back to the standard stuff from the end of the first set, the leap of faith, man's job, roll the dice trifecta. And again, all this was just a night where everything was great. And, and, and then we went into the encores. There was a guest appearance by Max on Glory Days. He did My Beautiful Award, which of course was a regular. And then the show ended with a beautiful version of Janie, Don't You Lose Heart, also acoustic, if I recall, dedicated to Barbara Carr. And we walked out of that building that night. I, I, how much have you talked about this night with Claudine? Not that much. More with you, Hal. More with you. It was we, when we were when we got in the car, we, we just it, we it, we couldn't really even understand what we had just seen. Everyone, when they heard the set list the next day, I know some people called it the Backstreet's Boss Hotline. I think we were on the Prodigy board still at the time, back in the early days of the Internet. Just n- nobody believed it. They, they, people <laughs> thought we were making it up. Yeah, I, I, I can see it. I can, I can imagine. This Hard Land, he's never even acknowledged the existence of the song ever. And here he is playing it acoustic in front of a hometown crowd. I just, yeah, that just boggles the mind. I can't even think of anything that would maybe protection if you busted out protection at an E Street band show, 
prior to its release, but I can't think of anything else that would have the same effect today. See, I don't think it would have the same effect today because as cool as it would be to see protection, we would like that very much. We're just more used to these shockers. We've seen everything by now. That's what the reunion era has been defined by, that no song was off limits. Right. And this was a time when he played a very, very small group of songs, tour after tour after tour. There was well, not. Yeah, go ahead. Well, especially in the fall of 92, he had gotten he had gotten his was it about a 28, 30 song set list and he for those last two, two, three months of the tour and nothing premiered and nothing, nothing was out of the ordinary. And then everything in the show was out of the ordinary. I think he really was exploring both for the European leg that was to follow. And I think maybe, as we were saying, he was working through some stuff in his head for the future beyond that. As you and I have discussed off air, this is a show that really, and the European tour as well, these shows taken in combination set the table for Jode. They also set the table, I think, even further down the road for the type of usage of background vocals he had on the Wrecking Ball tour. There, there's a lot that took place here that he really hadn't done before that pops up again later. Right. Well, I was always thinking that this kind of telegraphed or later roadmap for the next five years of his career in terms of the the Jode album and tour, as well as Greatest Hits, Murder, Inc., and This Hard Land, and then, and then tracks in 1998 as well. So to me, this is just a, a, a huge show in, in his career and one that without it or without him retooling what he had been doing in 92 we might not be where we are today it's true and and eventually because he does return to e street and and that'll be probably the subject for another show at another date but i think he takes the collective experiences from the 90s and uses that when he arrives back on e street and very effectively moving forward the other thing that of course he learns is that he can vary from e street and do his side projects and also have those be successful while still being with East Street. Because uh, as we know, the one thing that happened when he returned to East Street was even when he did, they, the band has stayed together since then. It wasn't like the 90s where he got rid of the band to do these alternate projects. Right. The band, I believe the phrase he used in 95 was an ongoing concern. And so it, he made it clear that he would work with the band sometimes and, and then not. And Obviously, over the last 25 years, it's been more banned than not. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Number the Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great, too. 
So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave's special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. So let's move on to Europe. The first show was in Scotland and Glasgow. The show opens with a three-song acoustic set, not quite the acoustic set that opened the Count Basie, but a very effective Darkness, Mansion on the Hill, This Hard Land pairing. Well, Mansion was unplayed since since when? The um, the Bridge Benefit in 86, even? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Right. And then and then you got This Hard Land, which became an every-nighter for the next three months. So he was still experimenting there in, in terms of what he was going to be playing in, in that spot. Yeah, in that first show, he, even though it opens with the acoustic set, it does go much closer to 92 than some of these other shows are going to coming up by the next show, the second show in Dortmund, Germany, he premieres many rivers across, which is a perfect example of what we're talking about with the use of the background singers, a vastly increased use over anything that had occurred in 92. Yes. And then, uh, I think it's also worth noting what songs are not being played. Real world is gone after the first three shows of 93 Local hero, even though even though it was a tremendous version of Red Bank, it's gone. And then even Living Proof seemed to not seem to. It did disappear after, after about the third or fourth show, and as well as Gloria's Eye. So he was he was still he was dropping some stuff to make to make room for the new material or for the new songs he added to the set. Yeah, the interesting thing here is as we talked about with the 92 segment with Robert Hilburn's article and the debate over whether there was too much older material. The thing here is he does bring some older material back into the show. The second show in Dortmund opens with seeds into Adam raised the cane. It also includes promised land acoustic, but the thing is he's recontextualizing these songs in a way that certainly like when we talked about Rosalita, which was played full band the final night of the New Jersey stand, this is totally different. The Rosalita, and uh, I hate to use the word again, but the Rosalita really was a, a bit of pandering. This is an artistic <laughs> statement that he's making here. Right. I, I agree. I was just going to point that out, that the songs, that the older songs he's bringing in, they're, they're all acoustic. You got Seeds, acoustic, Adam, acoustic, Promised Land, acoustic. Later, in, then in Point Blank actually makes its tour proper debut, and again, in an acoustic arrangement. And then in Sheffield, the first night in Sheffield on April 15th, Born in the USA becomes acoustic. So he really, he's, as you said, retextualizing this stuff. So 
it's new, but it's somewhat still familiar. The the Sheffield show, which our friend Roger attended, that is one of my favorite shows to listen to from this tour. Uh, there was an excellent Crystal Cat recording of that show. Yes, there was. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that in a minute, because first in Verona, a couple of songs premiere. Well, he does Time Will Tell with Jimmy Cliff, but most importantly, he premieres Who'll Stop the Rain between the river and Souls of the Departed. Of course, Souls continues to go on the Born in the USA as it did for most of the tour. Very effective group of songs. On the recent archive release, he dedicates it to the people of Bosnia, Herzegovina, right? Yes, yes, he did. And I think he did that at, at a lot of shows that spring. So it wasn't totally unusual for him to, to do that in in Berlin. Would you agree that he seems to be getting a lot more focused here at, yes. as we're into this 93 segment than he Absolutely. was certainly at the Meadowlands? Absolutely. Well, I mean, first off, that you don't have these random wild cars coming out every night. He's pretty the, the set's pretty much there. Trapped is the, is in there a few times. Sometimes it's not, but you got 57 channels, Badlands, many rivers to cross. It's it's pretty much. I mean, I'm just re- reciting the most of the first set here, but he's he's found he's found the show. He's found his set that works quite well. As you said, it's focused. It has a good flow to it. it and especially the second set, I was noticing that tonight, that from basically from because the night through light of day, it was pretty much static from starting in, in uh, late April, early May through the end through the end of at least the European tour. And that was a hell of a segment. Who'll stop the rain souls USA light of day. That's 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 just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Really, really good. And we talk about the narrative a lot. And one of the things that is effective here is with these songs that open the show acoustic. And then as the show continues, he really did develop a narrative here, even though there were a number of older songs that he was relying on. It's what we always say. It's when he takes the new songs and places them next to old songs, recontextualizes everything to tell the story he wants to tell. And certainly for part of 92, he, I, I think it's very fair to say he was struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And here, I think he really finds his sweet spot. Yes, he does. As I said, he just finds that flow and the old stuff next to next to the new stuff, as you said. And, and both of them, both the old and new, pop a little bit more when there's a bit more more context to them, as you would say. The Sheffield show is a perfect example. You You mentioned it. The, the second set opens with a, a pretty distinct acoustic version of Born in the USA. Of course, there's been so many different arrangements of that when he plays it acoustic over the years. Then it goes into I'm on Fire, Because Tonight. So you've got three older songs there, but mm-hmm. Born in the USA is, is acoustic. It's played in a place that we're really not used to hearing it. And then he goes into Human Touch, and, and then it follows with the sequence of songs, The River Who Will Stop the Rain, Souls Departed. He actually, of course, because Born in the USA had been played acoustic, he played Prove It All Night in, in the full band USA spot there into Light of Day. But it, there's something about it. Some people would say we're being contradictory, I think, because we, we said last time the old songs were a problem. But again, I think because of the, the artistic package that he puts together here, it just works much more effectively. If, if you listen to the Sheffield show, The Crystal Cat Bootleg, it's a really good lesson. Yeah, what I've always wondered, though, is how did he he started the second set with two slow songs. And I whereas previously it was 
on this tour it was glorious eyes or prove it just just crunching into the song or smashing into the song and here it's a little bit different so it goes he had he had some confidence in that material that he was going to hold the audience even if it wasn't uh you know get your ass out of the seat kind of song and again i think it's a pretty good example of how he's experimenting here because this is the only show where born in usa acoustic opens the second set Again, it's one of those sort of out of nowhere things. He's just trying it out. By the next night, it's back in its normal full band <laughs> position. And the second set opens with Glorious Eyes, which it couldn't be more different than, in, than Glory than Born in USA Acoustic. Well, in the Glorious Eyes, and to prove it all night. So he he uh, he, he gets him. He, he comes right back with the with the hard rockers to open that second set. I think the other note to to make here is. The first set of these shows really have a different feel, of course, because of the acoustic opening and also because Many Rivers to Cross is being played most nights. It just changed the tone, and especially because the first hour, well, the first set generally ran about, what, 75, 80 minutes? It's a bit, a little bit less, but yeah. So by the time the show got to intermission, I, I think it was quite distinct from what he had done in 92, especially when you compare it to that first European leg. Well, I'm just looking at the opening segment in Sheffield, and you got, as, as you said, the, the opening acoustic set. So you got three three songs that in totally a different arrangement or previously unheard, unreleased. And then you got the three new songs. So at, within this first six songs, everything is basically is basically fresh. Yeah, very fresh. And then from there, really, the only thing that's in the first set is Badlands. That would be considered a warhorse. Trapped is not his song and it's certainly not considered a war horse point blank is played in this particular show acoustic it's followed by many rivers across which was certainly fresh and then you've got the three new songs to end the first set so he, he really did create something new here and look i enjoyed the 92 shows i know you enjoyed the 92 shows mm -hmm. i think that we can say that and say we enjoyed the shows and and certainly i loved the meadowlands that was a great experience for me but again, I think he has found a focus here that is a much more successful endeavor, I think, for him artistically and probably more satisfying. Oh, I'm going to agree with you on 100 percent, obviously. I thought these this leg of shows, they were, as you said, he was focused. He, he found a narrative. And I think as listening to him now, the shows on 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 tape, so to speak, do hold up a little bit better than than the 92 shows. The one thing that was a killer, all this is unfolding now, as I mentioned, my buddy Roger went to Sheffield. I'm sitting in the States. I know you were sitting in the States. These sets are unfolding and we're not getting to see them. Now, of course, I had seen the Count Basie, but still there was such sort of, especially at that time for me, when I wanted to see everything, there was there was such an angst like, oh my God, are we not going to get to see these shows? And and of course, as we know, and we're going to discuss at the end of the episode, he did wind up adding two shows in the New York area, which really played off of this format, slightly tweaked because of the circumstances. But there was a lot of good here. You go to when he gets to Spain, we talked a little about it last time across a borderline, which is on the recently released archive is played in Spain for the first time on this tour. He does it half Spanish, right? Well, the, yes, the final verse is done in Spanish and to such beautiful effect. I thought it worked, worked tremendous. And that was another song which I believe I mentioned this last time that really utilized the, the backup singers to, to just tremendous, tremendous effect. 
Now let's talk about their May 14th show from Berlin, which is the archive. We touched on it last time. We didn't want to spoil it too much. This is just a perfect example of everything that you were just saying. There are six songs here to start the show. Darkness, Adam, both acoustic, Satan's Jeweled Crown played for the first time and a, a lovely arrangement using the backup singers, then This Hard Land, and then you get Better Days and Lucky Town. So you are way into this show with, again, just a completely different type of sequence than we were seeing on the 92 tour. Well, I, I kind of feel like we're being disingenuous disingenuous by saying that it's a completely different start considering that Better Days and Lucky Town are in there. But coming after the acoustic set, it they do add or they do bring a little bit of a different feel than they did uh, the previous year. I also thought the performance of Lucky Town in particular, I, I love, and it's on the archive release, at the end of Lucky Town, when he would yell Lucky Town right before going into the solo, I thought that yeah. was really cool. He had an energy, and, and the whole tour, he played his ass off, as we were talking about the last time. He had to be out in front. The E Street Band wasn't there. But there was there was something, and, and, and I noticed it listening to the archive, because even though the 92 shows, the 725 show I was at, I think the Boston is a good listen. But the, if you listen to the 725 show, as fun as it was to be there, it feels a little gimmicky because <laughs> because of what's going on in the second set with the performance of Real Man. He hasn't found exactly what he wants the show to be yet, I don't think. When I was listening to the the archive of this, it's a very good listen. You know, the people who knocked the 92-93 band, and I understand why that happens, but they should listen to this show and mm -hmm. understand, yes, it's not E Street, but this is a really solid band playing a very, very good show. And the fact that it's not E Street doesn't make them bad. It makes them different, but it doesn't make them bad. <laughs> well, I think in a, comparing this band, the other band, to E Street, I think it basically comes off as just unfair to those guys. Um, they didn't replace E Street. Bruce did. You know, it wasn't like they came in and kicked the, kicked the E Street band out and said, we're doing this now. They were hired to to play this show and you know they're not the e street band they're they're different musicians with different talents and they bring different different things to, to the stage and to bruce's music and yeah born to run is going to sound different so what so what <laughs> what they do play is actually pretty damn good as you were saying i the second set in in berlin is i I mean, that's a great, what, 50, 55 minutes of music. Just tremendous. Really strong. And it's interesting that he left Born to Run in the set here because the type of show he was doing here, he could have very easily dropped it. And <laughs> he Did really could have. I mean, artistically, because we know that he later, we were making this point the last time, he later arrives at the point where he says to himself, I don't have to play Born to Run. We know that because he wasn't played even once on the Joe tour. Here with a band, he probably felt pressure. Not, I don't think he feels pressure, but he probably felt like it should be in the show. But it really, I think that would have really taken it even to another level if Born to Run had been dropped. Because it really, with this band, it wasn't needed. And he probably could have found something else that would have been interesting to play there. I understand it's blasphemy that I would be suggesting that Born to Run not be played, but th that could have been left to E Street. And as we know, in subsequent years, it basically has been left to E Street. Well, I got a couple of points there. 
Uh, the first one is, I forget where it happened. Maybe it's between Hungry Heart and Glory Days. But you can hear the you can hear the crowd chanting for Born to Run. Uh, and he said, oh, we're going to play that later on. So, you know, the crowd wanted to hear it. And the second thing is just that the encores, that's the party. That's where people just want to have fun. And so... I don't I don't blame Bruce for, for, for playing three songs from Born in the USA in, in this encore. I don't blame him for playing Born to Run. I think it works well. It's a party, as I said. And and I also think Born to Run sounds a little bit fresher coming after Across the Borderline. I really like that sequence of songs and it goes into my beautiful reward, which which happened in, in the in ninety two as well. So that sweet sequence of songs really just it really it works well even in the in a in a party filled encore. Yeah, and of course you're right. And he's having fun in the encores here. A lot of the nights rocking all over the world is played in Mannheim. They introduce "It's All Right," which again uses Bobby King and the vo- and the background vocalist very effectively. They were having fun, and and the crowds were eating it up. Now the the other thing we have not yet discussed, and this is significant. This is the first time, of course, that he does a tour with a second European leg. And he doesn't return to the States. Now, I know he does the two benefits, but it seems like already they are starting to see that their audience is really getting stronger in Europe. And that is something that has played out in the in the years since. Of course, same thing with the Seeker Sessions tour. He did the the one set of shows here and they were bookended by two European legs. The first thing I've, I have thought about that, and the first thing is just that as I kind of said <laughs> said on the last episode, they kind of use Europe in '92 as a as a rehearsal as a rehearsal go to get their road legs under them to to get better to become a, a coherent band before playing in the states. So this is kind of their kind of Europe's payback for for that. They now they they have a show that as as we've said is is established. It has a clear smooth flow to it. It has a great narrative and. So now they get a they get a chance to see it, and you know, and he played a lot of shows in the U.S. in '92. It's did. not it's not like they got it's not like the U.S. got gypped here. And I don't know how much more they could have played in the United States. I mean, they played. It was a pretty thorough tour, comprehensive tour of, of North America, and they just would have hit the same the same places. And ticket sales actually they were strong, but I don't think there was the demand was there to do a whole nother leg. One other notable show to point out, May 20th in Dublin, he's joined by both Joe Ely for Settled for Love, and then later on in the show, he's joined by Jerry Lee Lewis, which I don't know if they have that one. That would be a fun archive to have great <laughs> balls of fire and a whole lot of shaking going on. Well, as you know, there's a there's a soundboard of that, of the second set uh, that's been around for since about 2003 or so. So it's we, we have a pretty good soundboard of, of the second half, and that may be enough for us right now. Well, they're probably not going to come back around to 92, 93 for what, <laughs> another year? At least another year. I think that, I think there are what? This is, uh, Berlin was the fourth one. Am I, am I doing that? Am I reading that correctly? It's, it was Jersey 725, Boston, then the Meadowlands, and now Berlin. So, yeah, there are four shows from that tour. So it's lagging a little behind. And I don't think that's, uh, that's an accident. And, you know, and, and that's, and that's okay. As much as we love it, we don't need uh we don't need a show every year. It is hard to see where they would go next year. I guess they'll probably go back to the Meadowlands, as we mentioned, 723, which was 
a yes, very that. important night because it was the first night and also it has the acoustic dancing the the solo electric dancing i should say and it has with every wish that would be a good choice europe they pretty much caught the flavor with this berlin show i i don't know if th- there would need to be another one oh i i totally agree i even thought that the that the meadowlands release kind of pretty much captured what was going on in europe except for the encores of course all right well we're going to get to that momentarily let's finish up they they finished the 93 european leg in oslo the show ended with chainsaw the roadie singing born to be wild and then they did uh twist and shout with landau and warren k <laughs> that's one of those fun things i i that i'm not sure that anyone needs to hear chainsaw <laughs> singing born to be wild no offense chainsaw yeah it's one of those things where if if Bruce was singing lead vocals on Born to Be Wild, that would have been a good release. But I think they made the right choice by going with going with Berlin for, for last month's archive. Do you know how much do they have from the 93 tour? Is there any idea on that? I, I don't know. Uh, we kind of we didn't talk about the Milton Keynes Stockholm mashup known as the, the Lost Broadcast Show, where they took uh, some shows, some songs from Milton Keynes, some songs from Stockholm and. Somebody, I don't know if it was, I mean, I assume it was Bruce, Bruce's people put together a, basically it was going to be a, a, a concert video to be played on TV or, or on the radio or whatever, but they put it together. So we know they have Milton Keynes. They, we know they have, we know they have Stockholm. They wouldn't be surprised if they had Rome as well as, as well as the tour closer in Norway, but that's all I can really surmise at this point. Well, we know that they had 624.93, a show that Bruce played at what was then called Brendan Byrne Arena, <laughs> uh, a benefit for hunger. I was there. You were there, right? I was there. First time I'd ever gone to a, a concert without a ticket and found one in the parking lot. So that was oh, uh, very lucky. <laughs> a major step for me. Yeah, I paid 80 bucks and sat in the last row, but one of the best 80 bucks I've ever spent in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I that was another Hal and Claudine adventure, and and I, we were lucky because we got caught in a massive traffic jam on the way there, but we made it. And this is another night that this is one of the ones that goes down in history. The Count Basie is great as it was. That was a a very small show. Only a few of us were very lucky enough to be there. This is a show witnessed by a large audience in 18,000. <laughs> Yeah, his home territory. Well, 20,000 were there. There's probably 500,000 claim they were there now. (laughs) In his home territory of New Jersey. And what what can we say about this show? First of all, I think the important thing to say about the show is because everyone focuses on what took place in the encores, which was (laughs) off the charts. But the first two sets before an E Street band member ever set foot on that stage, that show was a classic. Uh, yes, it was. As as I just said, this this one kind of shows what Bruce was doing in Europe that spring and summer. So he brought back a, a much improved show back to New Jersey after he had done 11 nights the, the year before, and he showed them what what had changed in almost in, in the last in the previous 10 or 11 months, and and everything was was done. It was a great performance, and, and you got Patty on both Brilliant Disguise and Human Touch, which I don't think she had been at very many European shows, so that was an improvement right there. And then you even had the, the return of Living Proof in there, and that, and that was, was a tremendous version of, uh, of Souls of the Departed as well. That was stunning the way, and I believe that was an audible, of course. Living Proof? Know, yeah. Okay. Souls had been played 
into Born in the USA for most of the tour at that point. And Souls was ending and out of nowhere, Living Proof started. And it was such a powerful version of the song. There was something about it because, of course, think about what Souls of the Parted is about and, and how he's singing about protecting his children. Right. And now he's he's playing Living Proof and it goes into Born in the USA. It was, it was incredibly powerful. I, I can see where also where people don't like the phrasing of Born in the USA at this particular show, but musically it was still incredibly powerful. And that was a... That was that was a hard driving version of Light of Day. I thought the version of Born in the USA. Now, yes, it's distinct, but I thought it was really there was something about it. it I, I just felt like that entire sequence, starting even going back to Brilliant Disguise, if I recall properly, he 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 surprised Patty. Isn't that the night he surprised her and he 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 danced with her on stage? Uh, I don't remember that, but I do remember she seemed to have disappeared off stage after Brilliant, and they had a hard time getting her back to come back for Human Touch. I just thought that the, the second set was so intense. It was mm-hmm. so intense that by the time he got into Living Proof and then into Born in the USA, the place was the loud. There was, oh my God, the loudness of that venue. Now, of course, it would get a lot louder, but the loudness of that venue that night you know, we can say whatever. It was an open secret. See, I don't know what impacts that has on the show. What do you think? It was an open secret that Clarence was there because he'd blown it. On the, <laughs> I think he blew it with Mike and the Mad Dog. If I, oh, if I thought I it was Howard properly. Stern. I thought it was oh, maybe Howard it was Stern. Howard. Yeah. And he called. He called in that morning at the to Howard Stern and confirmed he was going to be there. And well, maybe that just added to the anticipation that people had in the that kind of nervous anticipation people have at, at some of these kinds of shows and then so when when he finally did come out it was it was an explosion instead of just maybe if if nobody knew it, it would have been a stunned silence but <laughs> but maybe not i doubt i don't think that that building could ever be st- stunned in the silence well let's set the table for that because the encore is open with settle for love with joe ely oh what a then great Steve, version too great version and and Easy. joe Joe is one of those great performers. He he really showed it those nights that he played with Bruce. Steve came out and they did Glory Days. Then Bruce did Thunder Road solo acoustic as he'd been doing the whole tour. And at that point, I remember, and I remember saying it to your wife, the anticipation of Clarence coming out was was so huge, so huge, as you were just saying. And with Steve on stage, they brought out Southside and they went into It's Been a Long Time, which is a song... Oh, it was and the horns, yes. And it, it that's a song that I think everyone in Jersey just loves. It yes. it means a lot to people. And it was, of course, at that time it, it hadn't been out very long either. So right. I was just I was just thinking it's not the first time they had done it live, was it? Didn't no, didn't Bruce th- Bruce played on it at the at Pony. That, right at that December show. You you guys had been at the No, few no I early. wasn't oh yes. And they'd also done a video shoot when Roger was at that. I was not at that. There was a video shoot when yes, the, album the album came out. Yeah, like, that, that they was, played a few songs live as well. Yeah, yeah. It was the it was the video shoot in the fall of '91, and uh, yeah, Bruce was there. Steve was there. Bon Jovi was there, and they shot a good chunk of the. They played a good chunk of the of the of the Better Days album live with, and they filmed it. And I don't know if you can actually find it except anywhere these days, but. Here, here they played it, and it was everybody was there who was on the album, and it was it was magnificent. And that song ended, 
and Bruce counted in and 10th Avenue started. And to this day, I, I, I've never experienced, and we've seen a lot with Bruce. I've seen a lot with other performers. I've been at sporting events. I've never seen, well, really heard. <laughs> I've never heard anything that like what took place in in the moments as that song built and Bruce started singing 10th Avenue. And of course, then he got to the line, well, the change was made uptown, the big man joined the band and Clarence was on stage. Uh, is I mean, how can we even describe it? <laughs> you can't. You can't. It was such a tremendous, I don't want to say release, but yeah, it was a release when, when, when we saw Clarence. I can still see it. When he walked out on stage playing the solo, even though I don't think the house mic picked it up, but I don't think you could have heard it anyway. The, the It was just so loud. Just, uh, it was deafening. And I, I even picked up the guy. I think I didn't even know the people next to me. And I and we were all like hugging. And I remember picking him up off his feet even. <laughs> That's how excited I was. We were on the floor. And I remember everyone was standing on their chairs. And <laughs> it was it was just sheer craziness. And I'll tell you that that is a moment we know Clarence felt that way because I think he later said so, to someone that it was it was so loud it was almost a little scary. The that is one of those moments. The only thing that I could think of comparing it to, and of course we were not there, would Beatles. be the the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles <laughs> at Shea Stadium or whatever. So yeah. that's the only thing that I could think that that noise could possibly compare to. Yeah, you may be right, especially the fact that there was a roof to keep the keep the noise in so it had nowhere to go so it would just keep getting louder and louder it was delirium for the rest of the night they they did having a party well you missed you, you could skip you're gonna skip over born to run oh yeah let's <laughs> skip over born to run yes come on it got almost as loud then when when he did his solos yes yes i, I we should not skip born to run especially in this context here was the night that it had to be played it was played i don't even remember like i i it was played. We have an archive where it was played. The whole thing is just sort of like noise to me because that's how loud it was in the venue. Could you hear the actual music? Uh, I could hear the music, but this is where Clarence's mic went dead. Yeah. So I remember Bruce actually putting his vocal mic onto Clarence's horn, into Clarence's horn to make sure that everybody in the house could could hear that, hear the solo. Well, I, what a night and and <laughs> what a thing for them to be back together and to show the world that all was well and there was no animosity and whatever had taken place in 1989 that they they had gotten by it and the idea of E Street maybe was temporarily gone but it still survived and I, I think that's what that set of encores showed. Even though it still took nearly six more years for 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 E Street to fully reunite with Bruce, yeah, and of course you're correct. They did reunite briefly in '95, but it didn't stick. And Bruce, I think, had already determined that he was going to go do the Joe tour, so it would be another six years before the E Street band would reconvene. Yes, it would. And even in even that '95 greatest hit sessions, it seemed like not everything was back to normal. But uh, I guess that would take a couple more years. Well, they were certainly having fun here. As I said, <laughs> they, they did have in a party. Southside and the, uh, Southside was always great. I loved going to see Southside, especially in the '80s when he was playing with Bobby and and the Jukes, and we'd go to the Ritz. 
he was such a dynamic performer. And in later years, I, I don't know if his voice has held up as much, but here in the 90s, he was still great. And and to have Bruce and Steve and Southside on that stage together was, which is something that we hadn't really experienced a lot of either at that point. It, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was a party. They were having fun together. And the brotherhood was definitely obvious on, on that stage. First time I had ever seen all those guys on the stage at one time. So uh, I was I was beyond, beyond excited. To, to see that. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the song Having a Party, but that was a that was a m- monumental performance of it. Am I right? Or is it just like I built it up in my head and now I feel like I'm one of those people going, oh, he used to play till 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but this show did end like really super late. It went to like 12.45 a.m. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and that of course was back when Bruce still had an intermission between the, between the first and second set. So I did a half hour there, but yeah. It was it was a late night. Now, one more thing I do want to say about this show is that it, it ended on two mellow numbers and uh, Jersey Girl and, and It's All Right. And Jersey Girl pandering, as you said, <laughs> I'll definitely Max was that. there. The horns were there. I, th- eh. That entire encore eh. was really a eh. larger amount of pandering. If you really want to distill it down, I think everyone was OK with that. Well, okay. Well, people were, I guess if most people were okay with it, I mean, Jersey Girl is still a little bit too on the nose for me to be played there, but that's me. But I was never a fan of of It's All Right, uh, hearing it, obviously, at that show and through the magic of bootlegging and then on the two on the official release from from this show. It it doesn't really do a lot for me. And it kind of ended the night. It's not twist and shout going right to the end with the big finale. So I use it's kind of a I stop usually stop listening to the show around having a party. I'll give him a mulligan on that. I'm all right with <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> okay. Maybe if it started off the encore or something, but it I didn't like the placement of it and I didn't like the way it, it felt to to end these shows. And that and that right. includes the previous month in, in Europe. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. We left that venue. The next night, Bruce made an appearance on the final night of Late Night with David Letterman. He did Glory Days. And then we found ourselves in Madison Square Garden on June 26, 1993. I forget, were you at the show? I was not at that show, but I know you and my wife were. Yes, we were together. And uh, what, the eighth was- row, tenth row? Something like that. You're and actually on the was- you're, you're on the cover, or at least Claudine's on the cover of the Crystal Cat bootleg. Oh, really? Yeah, you never, I have noticed, never that. noticed that. I'll have to look for myself. 
Yeah, you're well. Claudine's there. I mean, her her her, her very distinct hair is, is so obvious, but I, I'm not sure about you. Now, unfortunately, this show becomes notable for not a good reason. The wrong. It reasons. opens. Yeah, it opens with Lonesome Valley with Joe Ely, which which was beautiful. And to put the show into context, and also important to note, this show was a benefit for the Kristen Ann Carr Fund, which was established in memory of Kristen Ann Carr, of course, the daughter of Dave Marsh and Barbara Carr who tragically passed away from sarcoma. I think that a lot of people maybe expected what had taken place two nights earlier in Jersey to happen again. Is that is that fair yeah. to say? Yes, I think that is fair to say. And they're, maybe they were expecting more, like a whole E Street Band reunion or something. Yeah, so I think there's that tension there in the audience before the show even starts. Now, I don't know how much of the audience knew exactly what the show was for. I mean, the t-shirts said it was for the Kristen Aaron Carr Fund. I believe there were some programs handed out. They should have known. The first set was pretty much on course with what he had been doing in Europe. He did many rivers across, but in this case, he brought out Terrence Trent Darby as a guest. And I recall, I can't remember exactly when it was stated, but I recall him saying that Terrence was there because he was Kristen's favorite. Is that, that's accurate, right? Yes, it is. So the, the first set played out as you would expect. And then the second set opened with Blinded by the Light, which sent the crowd into delirium. Joe Ely did Settle for Love again, great version. They did a couple of the normal songs that he was doing, like Brain of the Skies, Human Touch, The River. And then after Who'll Stop the Rain, he reintroduced Terrence Trent Darby and Terrence Trent Darby went into his song, I Have Faith in These Desolate Times. And even it's now 29 years later, I don't know if the crowd was outright booing or they were brucing because they didn't like the fact that Bruce was not singing the song. And it was a very quiet, delicate song, again, being done, I believe, because in the memory of Kristen Ann Carr, who the show was in tribute to. And the crowd's reaction, I remember my heart sank. It was mm. just, it was ugly. It was inappropriate. And there's just no defending the crowd reaction. And it set Bruce off. And he was as angry as I've ever seen him on stage. Now, I was not at the show where he cursed out the uh, Metal Lands. But he With the was, one in, he, what, All Devils and Dust? Yeah. But I'm guessing this is worse. He said something Oh, absolutely like, worse. <laughs> Yeah, I, he said, and I, I'm going to use the word because he used it. He he basically referred to the crowd as motherfuckers and said rude. anyone on the stage. What? Rude motherfuckers. Rude motherfuckers. Thank you. And anyone on the stage is my guest. You know, basically, they're not going to be treated like that. Over the years, people have debated because he did say Terrence, which is similar to Clarence. Did people no. think that? Clarence was coming out. There's been a lot of debate. I don't care who they thought was coming out. It was it was inappropriate. I mean, it just grossly inappropriate. Let's well, be clear about that. Well, the booing didn't start. Now, I mean, I only only listened to it on 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 tape, but the booing didn't start until the song started. So, right. If 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 they thought he said Clarence Trent Darby or or Clarence and the song started. I mean, there was no booing. People must have realized that 
this, I mean, there's a vast physical difference between Terrence Trent Darby and Clarence Clements. Let's let's be to honest say the least. here. And they didn't start booing until the song actually got going. And it's it is a quiet, somber song, and it definitely wasn't what they what some of the crowd were expecting. They, they wanted the they wanted the party like they did two nights earlier. It was really a shame. That would have been the case at any show, but at this particular show, it was it was just that much worse. And I don't think the show ever fully recovered. Yeah, yeah, I had heard that he had. It was his intention to you know to rock the place to, into the ground. And but after that happened, he, I mean, he wasn't in the mood to do that. He was just going to play out the show. And I can't even imagine what Joel LeBlanc and, and Jumpin' Jack Flash sounded like. I mean, or felt like. Obviously, I've heard them. Uh, I mean, how would he be able to muster the enthusiasm to really play it hard, except just to do it for the guy he was singing with? Who was, you know, that was Terrence Trent Darby. Well, Joel Blown, I was, I remember, I, and I think a lot of us were. I was just so off kilter. It's it's hard to even really think of the song in a way. And I hate to bring this up and it, we're, we don't want to go into a tangent, but everyone at the Oscars a couple of weeks ago said after the slap, there was just no recovery. The, 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 the audience was just taken completely out of the show. Now, of course that's mm -hmm. an assault, but this was, this was, it was not a physical assault, but the crowd's behavior was basically an assault on the performers on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you should have been on cloud nine hearing Bruce, and Terrence Trent Darby doing Jolie Blonde, and first time he had done it, and ugh, since what the River Tour, and you know, so it should have had the same kind of oh my god moment as you saw in Red Bank, but it just yeah, you're right, the building would just just must have been so so off. I mean, even the people, everybody would have been off. The people who booed, the people who were uncomfortable with the booing, it was just ugh, I can't yeah, imagine. It was it was bad. And what I will say, and Terrence Trent Darby really showed everyone something because after light of day, there was there was still in there was an unease over the entire crowd. And when they came back out, he really killed Jumpin' Jack Flash to his credit. And he nice. he he really both of them. That was a hell of a performance under difficult circumstances. And from there, Bruce did do a, a very nice alternate arrangement if i should fall behind oh, it was gorgeous wasn't with, it with Susie on stage and as you know they they finished up with born to run and a few of the usual encores it was the final night i don't know what they had planned do you, you said that you had heard that he was going to rock for a while do you have any idea what they had planned i don't and i i don't know the set list and i or i don't know the written set list so I don't know what was planned. I mean, maybe he. This was a, the show that was planned. It's just that he was going to put a lot more, uh, a lot more energy into it. And I guess he just kind of said fuck it at that point and just did Glory Days, Rockin' All Over the World, and Bobby Jean. But that was a, a nice version of Follow That Dream too, wasn't it? Yeah, first time I had ever seen. Oh no, I had seen it the year before right at the Meadowlands. The version of Follow That Dream meant a lot to me because I actually was packing up and moving. Shortly after this show took place, another couple of weeks from New York to Los Angeles, where <laughs> I, I still am to this day. And <laughs> the, the, the fact that that show ended with Follow That Dream, even with everything that had taken place that night, it meant a lot to me personally. Of course, it was just a coincidence, but it was it was nice to hear. But the show was marred. Uh, yeah. People have asked over the years, do we think this could be an archive? I, I don't see how it could possibly be an archive. 
I don't think anyone wants to relive that sequence. I, I don't think they would put it out. Do you? No, I don't. It's just I don't see it happening. There was one more performance this year. A couple of nights later, he repaid the favor at the trade wins with Clarence, where he did a small batch of songs. I was lucky enough to be there that night. That that was a wonderful night. It at least took some of the sting off of what had taken place at, in the manner that the tour ended. Yeah, it looked like it was a little little fun show down at trade wins. And uh, just two nights later, I, I see, I can't imagine Bruce even able to get out of bed two days after a uh, after a, a tour closing, a tour closer, but he was younger then. We all were younger. Then. He was in his early 40s. He had plenty of energy that we know. <laughs> and so, yeah, it looks like a nice little, nice little set with Clarence, the Red Bank Rockers. I guess it was, I guess the the line was to repay the favor for him coming to play with him at the Meadowlands. And yeah, it looks looks like a fun night. Yeah, totally fun night. And and again, for me, just a a, a nice way to end that sequence with that tour at I would soon pick up and move to Los Angeles. So the going out on the shore part of my life really came to an end, at least in a regular <laughs> fashion there. So let's kind of review or, or summarize the tour. Did uh, you enjoyed it? I enjoyed it. Do we think Bruce enjoyed it? Again, we have to factor in our ages. I was 24 years old. I had never seen, I'd seen multiple shows in the Born in the USA tour, but a small number of shows, same on the tunnel tour. I had never seen batches of shows like I did here, especially the summer of 1992. It was just such a fun time for me. So it's hard for me to separate. Looking at it now, artistically, I think that some of it was successful for Bruce. I, I think he probably views it that way. I think the 93 portion, as we were just saying, definitely became a lot more artistically focused and it was more effective. So this was really a transition period. The interesting thing is, of course, he never played with these with this group of musicians again. We know he may have done some recording with them. It never emerged. And he moved on to other stuff. And, and this really, this period, I think for me to sum it up, this period serves as a bridge between E Street and what comes later. I agree with you. I've always, the metaphor that I've kind of used is that after the USA tour, he, he kind of had a hangover and the first step was tunnel, which let's move by. Let's move people around. Let's add the horns. All right. Same old stuff. Let me play with some different musicians entirely. And he still, he made some strides, but still, I think he kind of still felt, may have still felt that it was a, he was falling into the same trappings. It wasn't until Jode where he just was, I'm going to go out by myself. I'm, I'm playing none of the war horses. And uh, that will be how I fully, fully what's the word not erase but get the usa the bruce of the usa era out of my system yeah he basically said in 95 i don't care what my audience thinks this is what i'm going to do some of them are going to come with me perhaps many of them won't and i'm going to be fine with that and i think that that was very noteworthy for him and and really does serve to effectively set up a lot of the stuff that has happened over the last 25 years so overall the, and we've talked so much about the 90s. After this, he heads into that 94-95 period. We, we released an episode called I'm Your Detail Man, looking at the crazy events that took place during those couple of years. This is especially, There's a lot of trial and error going on here with Bruce. and Especially 95. Yeah. <laughs> he was all over the map. <laughs> he was. And you check out that episode. So 
I think ultimately he emerges where he wants to be. And, and in 1999, 2000, he returns to E Street. And as we've said several times, he's kept E Street current. And he's also been able to go out and do a side project. So overall, I, I, I think, yes, it was it was a success because it led him to where he needed to be. Okay, that makes sense. And I, of course, we would love to know what Bruce, how Bruce views this period of, of his career now, looking back on it uh, nearly 30 years later. So Bruce, Bruce call us, well, we'd love to ask you. <laughs> have somebody ask him at least. Come on, it doesn't have to be us. Okay, so let's wrap this one up. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. We're a part of Evergreen Podcasts. On the web, find us at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.